0: Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International
1: Center for Scholars.
2: Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Bierstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and U.S. foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org.
0: In each episode of International History Declassified, Peter and I will sit down with historians to discuss their work and experiences researching in the field of international history. By examining their sources and methods, we hope to share with you the latest research being done on many different events, periods, and places that help shape our understanding of the world today. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of International History Declassified. With us today is Professor Alan McPherson. Dr. McPherson is the Thomas J. Freeney Jr. Professor of History at Temple University where he also directs the Center for the Study of Force and Diplomacy. His specialties include U.S. foreign relations and specifically U.S.-Latin American relations, about which he has written dozens of articles and a shocking 11 books. Today, we are going to discuss with him the latest of these books, Ghosts of Sheridan Circle, the story of the assassination of Chilean dissident Orlando Letelier, right here in Washington, D.C. Dr. McPherson, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, We're very excited to talk with you about this. Uh, This is a subject that hits very close to home uh, here in Washington, D.C. So uh, can we just start out with a brief explanation of who is Orlando Letelier and uh, what is the story of of this assassination?
1: Sure. Um, Orlando Letelier was by 1976, he was a former ambassador from Chile to the United States, uh, and he had been ambassador Uh, under the government of of Allende, Salvador Allende. And so a Marxist elected government, elected in 1970, overthrown in 73. Uh, Latelier had been his ambassador for most of that time, but he also had gone back to Chile and been a minister of three different portfolios. So by the day of the coup, uh, he's in Santiago and he's minister of defense. And so he gets arrested uh, by the, the junta gets uh, thrown into a prison in essentially almost Antarctica. Um, Then he's exiled by 1974 and ends up as a private citizen in Washington, DC. But he's working for an important think tank, a leftist think tank that still exists, the Institute for Policy Studies. And essentially he's sort of agitating against the uh, Pinochet government right, which is a brutal dictatorship, it's in power since September of 1973. Um, and, you know, Pinochet's government identifies these, you know, Chileans abroad as troublemakers. Um, and they want to discourage them from being, you know, being active against him, they're denouncing his human rights abuses, they're denouncing his economic moves, uh, and, and they're, and, you know, and he specifically, Letelier is successful in some ways because he's able to get Uh, the Dutch government to disinvest uh, a large, large disinvestment in Chile, and so Pinochet really is seeing him as sort of an economic threat and a political threat, somebody who could sort of rally uh, Chileans abroad, right, he's a, he's a socialist, but he's kind of a soft socialist, he's only a Democrat, and so He can get other people who are not socialists, but in the sort of anti-Pinochet opposition to listen to him, although he's not planning any kind of government in exile. He's not planning a return. He's simply trying to get other governments to put pressure on Pinochet. Hmm. Uh, But for those reasons, uh, the Pinochet government sends a team of folks to surveil him and put a bomb under his car. And so on the 21st of uh, September 1976, He's driving around Sheridan Circle, which is what the name of the, the title of the book comes from. Uh, and they blow up his car and he dies.
0: Brutal. <laughs> yes. Um, again, you you see why this uh this subject hits home. Um now a- am I right that uh this is all part of kind of a larger project, Operation Condor, where a number of uh, you know, countries within South America are sort of working together to eliminate or or arrest and or um you know, a number of other kind of options for getting out of the way these dissidents and these troublemakers, uh, as you put it. Uh, can you tell us about Operation Condor and, and its history?
1: Yes, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, it's part and parcel of Operation Condor. Uh, Operation Condor gets going at about 1975, when you now have sort of a solidly established, you know, Chilean secret police, and they start rallying other governments in South America. Uh, mostly the Argentines, the Brazilians, you know, the Paraguayans, the Uruguayans, everywhere you've got sort of a military government or a dictatorship, they're all on the right, and they're all essentially chasing Marxists, right? Because their view of politics is that if you are an opponent to us, even a peaceful opponent, um, you're an enemy and and you're subversive, you're trying to overthrow mm-hmm. us, and therefore you deserve, you know, imprisonment, torture, death, disappearance, and so on. So. They, of course, are doing this inside their countries, right? They're chasing down dissidents inside their countries. But Operation Condor is the effort by these South American dictators to say, let's help each other out, because it might just be that some Chilean dissidents are actually hiding out in Buenos Aires, right? You can help mm-hmm. find them for us, or at least allow our secret police to go into the government unimpeded. We'll catch our folks. We'll bring them back. So... um this is you know so most of Operation Condor operates within those territories. Now, what they tr- start doing also in in seventy five is operating outside of their countries. So they um, they try to assassinate another Chilean dissident in Rome, for instance, and of course the Italian government is not in on this, as far as we know. Um, and so Orlando Letelier is also part of this, where Chile basically. You know, we don't know exactly what they're thinking, but what I imagine they're thinking is that, well, this is, you know, the Nixon slash Kissinger Ford government. They're not going to mind if we do this. They're not really going to investigate because they believe in a larger sort of Cold War anti-communist mission.
0: hands-off approach also to these. Yeah, Yeah, they've
1: always been hands-off. They let us sort of do what we want at home. So why not just extend our power a little bit, reach over into the United States and kill someone there? That will really show the Chileans that there's no safe place anywhere. Right. Um, and so, but it's one of the rare cases of going outside of South America. Right. It wasn't sort of your typical Operation Condor operation.
2: And I, I think so. What, sorry. Go ahead. What really makes it interesting and and, and quite a, a fascinating uh, tale and story is is that it 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 was outside of uh, those Operation Condor countries. It was inside the U.S. It was in the capital city of the United States box uh, you know, less than a mile from, from the white house. I think it, its location, uh, lends a little bit of, uh, of, of gravity, I think to, to the gravity rather to the, uh, to the, the, um, the story of the assassination. And I, I just wonder if you could maybe develop that, uh, and talk a little bit further about, uh, some of the dom- the domestic us concerns that were, that may, may or may not have played a role in, in, uh, in the assassination. You mentioned the, the sort of trilateral, uh, Nixon, Ford, um, Kissinger angle, uh, was the was the election of Jimmy Carter? Uh, was that by chance uh, weighing in uh, on on any on any minds uh, going into the decision to make this uh, to to, t- to carry this out on on U.S. soil uh, the way that it, it it unfolded?
1: Yes, to a certain extent. I mean, again, we don't know that much about what went on in the minds of the Chileans as they were planning this. Um, now, there's a lot of context here that's important. Yes, this takes place uh, about six weeks before the election of Jimmy Carter right and when it happens carter introduces it into i think a presidential debate or a statement where he says hey you know we're losing control of of even our allies in south america right we need to really enforce human rights and so on um and he talks about national sovereignty also and so you know one of my articles on this has been about the unity of these two sorts of forces right the more sort of realist americans who are shocked at the fact that this is happening inside their borders. They're losing control of the Cold War, not to the left, but to the right. right? <laughs> These sort of you know, extreme right-wing dictators who are telling the Americans, no, no, this is how we're gonna you know, prosecute the Cold War. The Americans are going, no, 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 you gotta respect our national boundaries. This is crazy. So d- Democrats and Republicans are you know, mostly uh, committed to chasing down this crime. Hmm. Now, Those who are most committed are the Democrats, and especially a lot of Democrats in Congress, more so than the White House. So there's a group of Democrats in Congress who have come in after Watergate, most of them. Um, You know, people like Tom Harkin, uh, Ted Kennedy, and they're really concerned about human rights, right? They've got people in their staffs who are you know former Peace Corps folks. They've worked on Chile, they've worked on US Latin American relations, they've worked on civil rights. So it's a new generation of activists in Congress. And they're very much, they want to use the Congress to advance the cause of human rights. And in fact, to sort of force the executive, right, to have a legislature force the executive to respect human rights. And they pass some very important human rights laws, such as cutting off weapons supplies or other benefits or loans to countries that do not respect, you know, that that violate human rights in a sort of systematic way. And after the Letelier uh, Moffat crime, the Congress does one of these things and specifically puts into the law that the U.S. government cannot normalize relations with Chile until they've done this and this and that, and until they've significantly addressed the Letelier Moffat assassination. And I should add here, Moffat refers to 25 year old uh co-worker who is in the car uh with latilia when uh the car bomb goes off and she's hit with a piece of shrapnel in her throat uh and dies but she's not really a target of the bomb
2: and and a u.s citizen as as well she she was not a a cuban i'm sorry rather a chilean um, uh, dissident however a a colleague of uh, latilia exactly um maybe just uh briefly and I, i i i to, to what extent you can, you can talk about this, um, how did the assassination affect U.S.-Chilean relations going, uh, going forward into the, into the Carter administration?
1: Yeah, um, you know, quite seriously, uh, you know, you, you've got sort of several processes going on at the same time. One is that, you know, Carter is somewhat serious about human rights and realizes that, you know, Chile, Argentina... Uh, the Southern Cone of South America in general is going to have to be dealt with. He's going to have to put some pressure on them. Uh, and he does impose some sanctions, but they're relatively mild. Uh, and so he's also acting under this pressure from the Congress that's saying, no, no you got to cut off relations. you got to cut off all loans, mm-hmm. not just public loans, but private loans. I mean, imagine if you tell U.S. bankers they cannot lend to Latelier anymore. That would devastate the regime. That never happens. Right. Uh, so. The Chilean economy goes up and down, but essentially continues running the way it wants to. Um, It's not particularly effective, um, but it does have certain impacts. For instance, um, you know, the, the, the ambassadors are called several times, the heads of sort of Latin American affairs in Washington go to Santiago, and they're telling them, you know, this particular crime we take very seriously. You want to continue being a dictatorship and repress your people? There's not much we can do about that. But this particular crime, you have to address this because it happened in the United States to an American citizen and also to a former ambassador who under the U.S. code is also a protected person and therefore that's a crime. And I don't think the Chileans knew all of these sort of legalities. Um, And so the FBI is pursuing this. And the FBI doesn't really care what the rest of the U.S. government wants, right? It doesn't really care that this might damage Chilean CIA relations, or it might be tough for the US, you know, the US Embassy, or for uh, Ziggy Brzezinski, right, who's a national security advisor, and he kind of wants to be hands off on this. The FBI is saying, hey, it's a crime. Our job is to solve the crime, and we're going to put a lot of pressure on the Chileans to solve this crime. So there's a lot of dissent within the US government. And then, of course, when Reagan comes in, it gets worse because then Reagan really wants to try to normalize things, but he can't. Because the Congress has laws that says you have to advance this case. So throughout the 1980s, the case remains a real thorn in the side mm-hmm. of the Chilean relations. And I mean, if you could say that it's the main cause for the secret police in Chile to be disbanded, I think, by 1977 or 78. It turns into something that is still a secret police but less repressive.
0: That's fascinating. Um now there's also a question of like the US being involved in the operation more like more or less indirectly, directly, um, like the broader Operation Condor. How much was the CIA conscious of, if not the Latelier attack, then other kind of attacks and and similar um, actions by these Operation Condor? uh, Yeah, no, that's a good
1: question. And it's a subtle one, you know, because I think it has to be recognized, first of all, that there's no evidence that the CIA knew that that an attack was coming in the United States or on the tail year anywhere. Um, now, it is certainly complicit in the founding and training of of Condor operatives. I mean, it's, it's helping with intelligence, it's helping with training. Uh, I don't think the CIA is the impetus for this. I think the impetus is the Chileans and the Argentines and so on. But the CIA says, yeah, this sounds about right. <laughs> this is what we would expect you to do. And so we're gonna help you with you know uh, communications that sort of thing but the cia is not directly involved in killing anyone as far as we know um now more importantly are the signals that henry kissinger is sending about Letelier right before the assassination i mean in the summer of 1976 right the crime happens in september in the summer of 1976 kissinger goes down to santiago you know of all places and gives a speech to the organization of american states about the importance of human rights basically saying you know we're now we're now admitting this is a it's something that all governments need to pay attention to the united states really cares about human rights it's unstoppable and right after that he goes back to his office and basically tells his staff forget everything i said it's just <laughs> for i'm just saying this sort of to protect the white house to subdue, you know, the FBI, the Congress, and so on. Before he gives the talk, he actually has a meeting with Pinochet. Right, he's in Santiago, has a private meeting with Pinochet. At the meeting, Pinochet tells Kissinger, you know, generally that he's just really annoyed be, because all of these Chileans abroad are agitating against him, and he names Letelier twice in a meeting, and never once does Kissinger say, "You're not gonna, you're not thinking about assassinating." right this person right who lives in the united states i mean we would never countenance that he says nothing like that in fact he basically says uh, i don't have the exact quote here but you know these are domestic issues you do what you need to do mm-hmm. you're not going to get involved um also what happens in that summer of 1976 is that an order goes out from the secretary of state kissinger to all of the Uh, ambassadors of South America, basically telling them to tell the presidents of South America, we know what you're doing. We know about Operation Condor. We know that it involves assassination of leaders. Um, We think it's a terrible idea and we think you should stop it, right? That's what the order is. And that's what you would expect the Americans to do. Um, None of these ambassadors actually relay the message. And a few of them basically have said, well, we're afraid that You know, either they weren't going to take us seriously or there were going to be repercussions against us. And so mysteriously, none of the ambassadors do what the secretary of state tells them to do. Right. And a few weeks, I think before the assassination, Kissinger rescinds his order, right? Takes back his order basically says, Never mind, we're not going to tell them to do this. We're not going to tell them that we know. So it's a mysterious episode that gives gives you a good sense of sort of. Kissinger's hands-off attitude towards, uh, towards sort of torture and human rights violations in South America. And so it's no surprise that the Chileans in the summer of 76 would think, of course, we can do this in Washington, right? But of course, they think that, the, that Washington is sort of one unitary government that all acts in right, you know, right. common, and it's not. It's more complex than that. If the FBI is going to have its orders, and they're going to try to complete their mission as best they can.
0: So I think that this is a kind of when, when you start getting into the question of what is the truth, how much did people know? I think that's a pretty great time to transition into kind of conversations about research and the documents that you've been working with and, uh, you know, trying to figure out exactly who knew what when. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you did for the book and where uh, kind of the core of your sources came from?
1: Yes, um... Well, I started in uh, 2014, 2015, you know, reading background things. And uh, eventually I got to documents in, in the fall of 2015. And that's important because one of the first big collections I went to was a collection of 29 boxes at the National Security Archive in Washington. So Peter Cornblue works there. I'm sure you know him. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found out is that he knew not Orlando Letelier, but his widow. And she plays a very important role in my book. She's probably essentially sort of the main character. Um, And what she did in the early 1980s is filed not only a criminal suit, but a civil suit against the Chilean government. Um, And so as part of that suit, they collected all these documents. And so they actually essentially had everything from the FBI, right? Um, And a bunch of other great documents, but essentially everything the FBI ever wrote to each other about this suit. So you have all of these great details of this investigation. So that took me about a month to go through. Um, and what Peter didn't tell me when I was there is that he was secretly working with the State Department to declassify several more documents mm. that had to do specifically with this case. He couldn't tell me at the time. Uh, so I went back home and then I got, I got the news that Secretary of State John Kerry was visiting Chile. And as part of doing that, he declassified thousands of documents, um, hundreds of them had to do with this case. And so 2015, a huge declassification of documents. One of them is very interesting because it is a document written in 1967, no, excuse me, 1987 by the CIA. And it's a document in which the CIA says, we now think that Pinochet himself ordered this assassination and then covered it up. Right, so the US government had never admitted to having reached that conclusion before. Um, a year later in 2016, um, I'm sorry, in 2015, the letter, a letter came out written by Secretary of State George Shultz to Reagan saying the CIA had come up with this. Next year we get the document from the CIA. So there's two huge declassifications, 2015, 2016, and that's really sort of uh, you know, the cherry on top. Of everything else, you know, um, because already it had all these great documents. Uh, apart from that, there was a lot of uh, newspaper, magazines uh, at the Library of Congress that I got. Um, I did some interviews. Um, one of them in Washington, D.C., because at the time, the ambassador to Washington was Juan Gabriel Valdez, and his uh, he was in fact a young student at American University. Uh, I think it was American University, when the assassination uh, took place uh, and he was supposed to uh, be in the car with Latelier that day and decided not. Wow. To. Um, and now, you know, in 2000, I think 17, it was he was ambassador. And so he had all these sort of memory, memories of this. Um, I also interviewed two of their four sons. They have four sons. Um, I also interviewed the, the widow. I went to Chile and interviewed the widow. Uh, And in Chile, the Latelier family also had its own collection of documents. They were more sort of personal documents, uh, but they were great, you know, letters written while he was in a concentration camp, uh, photos, you know, rare photos of the family, uh, all sorts of great stuff like that. Uh, So the family has been really good, uh, and I I hope they, they appreciate the book
2: great I think uh, really interesting to, to, to hear about not only the way that the the documents uh, have have informed your uh, your writing but also the the interviews can you tell us about um, maybe some other 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 uh, interview subjects that you you spoke with uh, aside from the, the family and the wife that uh, and maybe just a, a bit more broadly how do you how do you think the uh, sort of oral history uh, and, and those yeah. types of interviews uh, fits into the the larger uh, larger discussion about uh, history and historical scholarship
1: um, I mean, the oral histories were were interesting. I interviewed, I've actually went to Amsterdam because I uh, interviewed a few people there, but mostly I was there to work in, uh, I think it was the Institute for Study of Social History. And they had the documents from an organization that Orlando Italia was a director of called the Transnational Institute. Mm-hmm. And so they had some interesting documents, talked to a few people there. Um, you know, it was just to get a sense from people who knew them of what kind of folks they were. I wanted to, Know about the family. Uh, I think, you know, the way that I wrote this book, uh, it's essentially a narrative nonfiction, right? So it's not your typical academic book, even though it has an argument and it uses all the documents that are out there. Uh, it's really kind of a political thriller if you sort of look at the style of the writing. Uh, it's important for me to, it was important for me to get to know some of the characters and to develop their personalities as characters. Uh, to get a sense of their backgrounds and their, their values and so on. So, you know, and and the widow, Isabel, was, like I said, the most important character because, of course, she lives, right? And she seeks justice for her husband until the mid-1990s, right? So this, the, the book goes all the way to the mid-1990s, which is when they finally put in jail the man who, made, who gave the order, right? Not Pinochet, but the head of the secret police and his right-hand man um and so going to chile sort of getting a sense i talked to a few people who knew them in chile um the 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 sons that i spoke to actually lived in california because this was a very uh binational family right they all spoke english and spanish very well he was ambassador in the united states uh one of the sons was born in the united states um and so two of them actually ended up living as neighbors in in venice in california and so i went and spoke to both of them on the same day um, and it was fascinating to see how their lives were affected by this right because they were all teenagers they had four boys all of them teenagers probably between the ages of you know 15 and 20. Uh, and so they had to live the rest of their lives uh, with this tragedy uh, defining them so you know part of the interviews was not really getting you know information but it was just sort of getting a sense of who these, these folks were. And also, sometimes it was sort of confirming stories from the family, that sort of thing. What was your grandmother like? What was your mom like? Your aunt, or Orlando Letelli, your sister um, is a lawyer and um, she was an important part of sort of defending their case in Chile um, in, in the 1980s. And so I wanted to know about her. I tried to interview, interview her. Unfortunately, she got sick right as I tried to do that. So. Uh, they they canceled the interview, but but that was that was part of the plan too. Um, you know, and I was I was quite aware that you know, this this is sort of the last time that I could interview some of these folks. Or isabella Taylor was eighty seven when I met her. You know, uh, you know, lucid but not in great health, and so it would have been hard for her to to travel, you know, or to probably even meet me somewhere. So I went to her place. Uh, she was very forthcoming. We talked for about four or five hours, uh, and so she had uh, you know lots of stories to tell.
0: It's really interesting, the the tough situation that historians are put in when trying to match uh, interviews with documents, because the timeline for getting the interviews is very quick. And you have to try to get with these people, especially the further back you're you're studying, your subject is, you have less and less time in order to get these interviews. And yet, the longer you wait, the better the documents you'll probably get are. So it's, it's sort of tough to balance that. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, my, 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 my general strategy has been to wait as long as possible to do the interviews, right? So that I really know the story mm-hmm. and then I'm not sort of going through basic, you know, basic history that I could get somewhere else. And then, and sometimes I, you know, I know the documents and I'll tell them, you know, on this date, you said this, uh, you know, what do you think about this now? Jar
0: mm-hmm. you know, the memory a little bit.
1: Yes. I mean, you know, to actually have the documents with you can be really interesting, can be really important, can jar the memory. Uh, but often it sort of impresses them and they realize, OK, I can go into real specifics with this person uh, and not just sort of lecture them about, you know, general historical trends and that sort of thing. Just, you know, they know that you know them really well.
0: Right. 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 So um, about the documents, did you ever get a chance to work in the Chilean archives at all or any of the archives in the in the continent? Yes.
1: Yes. Um, I didn't work in the Chilean um, Foreign Ministry archive, but I had a colleague who did, and he told me there's not a lot on Letelier, but you know he gave me a few documents that were on there, um, and and they were they were very useful. Um, what I did work on was this Letelier collection, right? The Letelier family collection, which uh, which was a which was in the National Archives of Chile, but at like a different part of the archives. It wasn't the Foreign Ministry. Uh, they were very welcoming. I was the only one in that part of the archive. I'm not sure exactly how that archive is supposed to work, but when they found out what I wanted to work on, they brought me sort of upstairs, away from where most other archi- uh, most other historians were. Where working. the better
0: cameras were, they could really get a look at your face. Uh, maybe, maybe <laughs> it was
1: something like that. But they were super nice to me. I mean, if I needed anything scanned, they would do it immediately. You know, they would they wouldn't charge me for anything. Uh, Later on, I needed permission to reproduce a bunch of photos. They just gave it to me without any hesitation. They signed everything. I mean, you wouldn't get that in the United States, right? Uh, Latin Americans generally are a lot less concerned about declassification, about permissions, you know. Um, I've never had a Latin American turn me down to give an interview for sort of reasons of security, Mm. let's say, right? That That they feared some sort of reprisals from this or that they tried to sort of control the interview. If they ever said no, it's because they just they couldn't, they weren't town, or they, were, they weren't healthy enough. Um, but Latin Americans, generally speaking, I think have a sort of a healthier respect for academics and for writers and people who are doing research. Uh, and um, so I've, I've found it to be relatively easy uh, and really welcoming to do, to do oral histories in Latin America. I would, I would tell researchers to try and do more of them because it's, it's pretty easy.
2: So um, I think that does kind of lead into uh, a bit of a a more general and standard question that we try to ask all of our podcast interviews uh, and guests who come on, uh, which is, you know, um, thinking about the the different uh, documents that you've seen, the different oral histories, uh, interviews that you've done. um, Is there any, uh, you know, surprise document that jumps out at you or really sticks in your mind or a statement that that, uh, some interview subject has made that, um, you know, perhaps you didn't necessarily change the way you you you, you understood the situation, but perhaps uh, provided a, a new perspective and a, or a new angle, or just something that is a a, a fun fact that you you learned. Um, we like to try to find these uh, these little golden nuggets of, of documents and, yeah. and try to highlight them as best we can.
1: You know, I haven't mentioned this yet, but one of the places I went to was the Wisconsin Historical Society uh, in Madison, and they have the archives of IPS, right, the Institute for Policy Studies. So it's the think tank where Latellier worked. And then after he died, his widow essentially took his job, right? She transformed it to her own interest, interest, but she essentially worked for them for the next 10, 15 years. And so all of her archives were there, all of the archives of Saul Landau, who, was, who wrote a book about Latelier, who was a friend of his. Um, he also worked there. So they were probably in terms of sort of getting to know the family and getting to know their personal lives, probably the most interesting archives. And I'll give you the sort of the the one set of documents that was the most interesting to me. So as they're moving forwards with their civil case, they're trying to get essentially reparations from the Chileans. But at some point the U.S. government, the Bush government, in fact, backs them and says, okay, we're gonna back you. And this is the first time in American history the American government has backed private folks trying to get reparations from a foreign country. And eventually we'll get like two to $3 million. This is everybody, right? The Moffitt family, the Killier family, the four boys. Um, and in the process of trying to get this, I think they have to prove that this has hurt them. You know, They have to sort of prove to the courts how much the case has hurt their lives, not only their, their, their uh, ability to make money, but just their lives sort of emotionally. And so they all, uh, they all write uh, kind of a mini memoir of what their lives were like the day of the assassination and ever since then. So you have this from, I think, all four boys, certainly the widow. uh, Michael Moffat is the widower of Ronnie Moffat. So he writes this thing. And he has a very tough response to his young wife dying in this horrible accident. Uh, The parents of Ronnie Moffat are writing this thing. So psychologically, I had these great profiles of the suffering of these sort of grieving families. You You even had psychologists. had you know interviewed them and said i think they have ptsd they've got depression they've got this and that um and i never imagined i would encounter this right none of these folks they had given interviews but they hadn't really been very personal in their interviews um and now they were right for a court case of all things um and so you know one thing i get out of this uh out of this book is that court cases are really fascinating in terms of research right they are often treasure troves of research because you they have they generate so many documents and often they they generate documents from people whose voices are often not heard right they could be people who don't have any voice in the media people often aren't literate right um and Uh, they can be criminals they can be people, you know, families of criminals. And so often you have to sort of paint a picture in court of what this person's whole life is like for you to either prosecute them or defend them. And so, uh, we get all these great documents about, about the batiliers.
0: That's great. That's a really, uh, kind of unique opportunity to, to see into the lives of these people that, uh, you absolutely don't get to experience that very often. Um, I was. It reminds me of. uh, Did you see the Michael Jordan documentary on ESPN? Um, About it's like ten episodes. Yeah, Last Dance. They interview uh, Steve Kerr and talk to him about uh, his father Malcolm Kerr, who is a a historian working at the University, the American University of Beirut uh, in Lebanon, and was assassinated. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, and so it's it's really interesting to get to see how that would impact. uh, You know, the son of this person growing up, and then. The coincidence that he becomes a, a star basketball player on top of that but it really it, it really adds the human element to a lot of these you know political issues that we deal with
1: yeah and i think this is one of those great cases that you know you could really do this with because the documents were out there but you know i, I had to do a certain amount of digging uh, to find them yeah uh, but once you do you realize everybody's got a fascinating story you know yeah. if you can get to those documents and get to those people
0: yeah, that's that's the big question. As if you can, <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, right. well, it is nothing but a, a fascinating
2: and and tragic story, and and really appreciate uh, you coming on and, and offering to to shed some light on it uh, for us, and 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 educate not only Keon and myself, uh, but our, our podcast guests as well. As we mentioned at the start, this is um, uh, uh, you know, there are personal connections. Uh, Keon has lived in D.C. all of his life. I've been here for um, fifteen years now, so it's a, uh, um, this is a. Uh, the place that uh, that we have uh, definitely passed through many times without probably even ever giving a, a second thought to to what had happened there um you know, 40 years ago so um thank you so much for, for really the thank opportunity you to, to, to talk yeah well thank you yeah. very
1: much for having me actually i should say next time you do pass through sheridan circle you'll see there's a little medallion very mm-hmm. close to the ground there where the accident took place yeah, absolutely going to do that. <laughs> you can yeah, stop and have a look at it. yeah
2: As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music.
0: You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.